0: Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Megan Hamlin, and welcome to Unravelling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do, and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, Sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. So today I'm joined by Dr. Andy Hobin, an assistant professor in NUI Minute and the principal investigator of the Metabolic Immunology Research Group. So Andy's research focuses on the impact of obesity on the immune system and the development of other comorbid diseases such as type 2 diabetes and cancer, but with a particular focus on childhood obesity. And Andy is a previous UCD Newman Scholar and also an NCRC Research Fellow. And so, yeah, I'm thrilled to sit down and chat to you today, Andy. So thanks again for coming on Unraveling Science.
1: Thanks, mate. Delighted to join you today and kind of chat about what we do.
0: Yeah, perfect. So... I suppose in this podcast, I'm interested in the research, but I'm also interested in maybe the people behind the lab coats and the stories that shape the science. So could you give me a bit of insight as to what Andy Hogan was like when you were a child? Were you always interested in science or did you have other careers in mind?
1: As a child, I, listen, I was always really interested in, in, in kind of science and nature. I, I was lucky that um, I had, kind of my dad was really into kind of the outdoors and nature. and He taught me a lot. So how I get into science is quite an unusual one and quite an embarrassing one. So um, as a child, um, my claim to fame is I am All-Ireland Parrot Breeding Champion. Parrot so, Breeding? Parrot Breeding, yeah, it's not so really usual. Um, yeah, it's not so really usual. And, and that's kind of how I get into science. So essentially, when I was younger, my dad, for one of my birthdays, uh, got me a couple of parrots. And um, parrots then, if you have a male and a female, it turns out that you have baby parrots. And so I had two gray parrots, but all of a sudden out came a a yellow parrot. So my dad had to kind of sit down and explain to me that, you know, there was, within the genetic line, there was, um, as it turns out, albino parrots, which is quite common in parrots. And that for every four chicks, one of them is going to be an albino. And uh, so he got me a book on genetics of parrots, essentially. (laughs) and, And that was it. That's how it started.
0: Well, I was not expecting that answer.
1: No one ever does. No one ever does. And um, my kind of wife is always embarrassed when I mention that, you know, I was a power breeding champion. So yeah, there you go.
0: Well, I heard you're also a kickboxing champion as well. So there's uh, a lot of accolades there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the kickboxing came a little bit later. Um, I gave up the power breeding, got into kickboxing. And actually, that was nearly my career. I kind of hit a fork in the road when I was in college, either to go full-time kickboxing or do a PhD. And uh, thankfully, common sense prevailed and I did my PhD.
0: Yeah, so when you were in school or when you were doing your leaving search, did you want to do science or was it kind of something that happened later on or, or how did that come about?
1: No, definitely. I was always, as I said, I was always into uh, science and in particular, um, I was into, you know, uh, animals of, of all sorts as well as kind of, um, kind of human disease. So I guess biology was always my favourite subject in school. Uh, it turns out it was probably by coincidence, but it was probably one of the best teachers I had was my biology teacher. I don't know if that's, you know, positive mm. effect. Um, but I was really into biology. Um, and kind of, so I knew from fairly early on that was the avenue I was going to go down.
0: And that was in Minoult, was it?
1: Yes, yeah, so I did my undergrad here in, in Minoult where I'm kind of now lecturing. So I started here in... Um, 1999
0: <laughs> you didn't have to say the year but now yeah, we all
1: 1999, know because <laughs> i did get a call recently i oh you know it's coming up to like a, a 21st anniversary and i was like oh, that can't be right <laughs> yeah so i started uh, minuta in, in kind of 99 uh doing just general science and really only interested in, in biology as it turns out but i did one of other subjects with it
0: and from then like after your undergrad did you go straight into a phd or was there a break there
1: No, pretty much straight into it. So so, um, towards the end of my undergrad, I got really into uh, immunology and Manute had some really good immunologists here. And one of them uh, who's now actually based in Trinity College, Derek Doherty, He offered me a PhD. So I pretty much went straight from undergrad into Derek's lab and looking at kind of immunology. And then kind of halfway through that, we we moved out to the James's campus, uh, St. James's Hospital to Trinity College. And
0: then from there, you kind of developed your love or your passion for obesity research, uh, linking in with the immunology. And can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I I guess, you know, you're you're kind of defined by some of the people you you meet along the way. And I've had some great kind of mentors. But when I was doing my PhD, we were working on a a cell type called the invariant natural killer T-cell. So the INK T-cell, a real mouthful and kind of one of the worst kind of acronyms in immunology. And Derek had a big interest in these, but it turns out at the same time, uh, Lydia Lynch and Donald O'Shea in UCD, they had discovered this cell was really abundant within fat. So up to that point, in kind of my eyes, I think the majority of people, that fat was this storage organ where you stored your kind of excess calories and your energy stores. And kind of Lydia and, and Donald kind of discovered that actually it's a really dynamic immune organ. And because I was working on INKT cells and they were kind of discovered anything he says they came to me so I I was really lucky in in that 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 was the first point of contact and we started working together and then kind of I once I finished my PhD uh, I joined Lydia and Don Loudon UCD as a Newman scholar as you mentioned
0: yeah, and when I started my fourth year project, that's where you were based, in the ERC. I was very excited to kind of be in the ERC. There was a lot of translational research. And I think your group is very translational as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the ERC was a fantastic and still is fantastic kind of place for that translational, because it's a place where the clinicians meet the scientists. And I think for... Translational research that's really important, you know, for kind of us scientists to interact with clinicians, but, but equally for the clinicians to interact with scientists. And that was the whole idea, I guess, of the And, you know, as you said, we deal kind of primarily, if not 100%, in humans. Most of our work is with Donald O'Shea in obesity and kind of looking at the people with obesity that attend Donald's clinic. And I said, we're, we're really interested, and in kind of, as you said, in the immunology of this. Because when we think of obesity, the conditions that come with it are all conditions that as an immunologist, you would think about inflammation. And so, so we kind of got really interested in, in how obesity causes inflammation and how this inflammation then causes, as you said in your, in your intro, things like type 2 diabetes and cancer.
0: Yeah. And could you just maybe give us an overview of why you think obesity is such a huge problem and especially a huge problem in Ireland today?
1: Yeah, so I guess the, the stats kind of speak for itself. So, so now we're, we're kind of approaching uh, 600 million adults worldwide who, who are kind of living with obesity. And as we said, you know the, the kind of range of diseases that it's linked to. So there was a, a nice kind of study published last year, which links obesity to 200 other conditions. Mm-hmm. And so, what it does is it it directly causes some of these, but um, it also makes other conditions worse. So, I know you work on kind of rheumatoid arthritis, and I think obesity is linked to kind of severity there. Mm. So, it definitely it's a major problem in the fact that it drives these diseases, but also makes a lot of other diseases harder to manage. And it's becoming so prevalent now. We now know that even our our children, as young as you know, three years of age, there is an obese uh, kind of cohort within that. And, you know, these guys are being set up for chronic disease throughout their whole life. So, so that's really kind of our our kind of interest is, is to try and understand how obesity drives these diseases, but mainly to see if we intervene.
0: Yeah. And like, I think the whole childhood obesity scenario is very interesting because if we could intervene at a young age and maybe prevent a lifelong, as you said, burden of these inflammatory conditions. And do you think this is something that maybe the schools could look into, like, you know, extra PE or, you know, like all these kind of environmental or or lifestyle factors, I think, come into play as well.
1: Yeah. So I guess it's such a complex problem. And I I think when I started into it, you know, you kind of, you do start with thinking, okay, this is a case of calories in versus calories out. And very quickly you kind of get into the biology of, and you realize that there's everything from, as you said, environmental kind of in, inputs, but there's also societal inputs, you know, kind of personal psychology. There was a nice even uh, kind of study shown that your friend, your friend group and your kind of social network impacts, you know, your, your body weight. So it kind of goes beyond just what the individual does. And I, I think what we're really interested in is that when you get into the, the degree of obesity that donal um, studies, which is people who are probably attending, you know, a hospital for it, the biology really starts to break down. So a calorie doesn't really equal a calorie. So so some of our people, you can work out that to maintain their body weight, they might need to consume five thousand calories a day. But actually when you look at what they're consuming, they're only consuming three thousand calories. So there's a disconnect. So their body, you know, is not handling calories the same way a person with a with a kind of normal BMI would be.
0: And, and how can we, or how can, you know, your research combat that? Or what, what kind of strategies are, are you looking at uh, within your lab in Minute?
1: Yeah, so, so I, I guess our original kind of idea, uh, Megan, was to, to kind of raise awareness that, that this is a disease because, you know, there is still people who kind of look at obesity and kind of say, well, this is obviously an individual problem where people are still kind of using the words lazy and, you know, look me, and these kind of really negative Kind of words that are kind of attributed to it. So, uh, as we said, it can start really early on in childhood, and you know, it can even start before that. We, we kind of now know that even your your kind of grandmother and grandfather, their body weight can have an impact on the later generations. Is
0: that kind of an epigenetic component, or why do we think that that's happening?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so so, that's exactly the thought. So there's definitely, there is a genetic basis to some of obesity. So, you know, it's our genes haven't changed that much, but what happens is we have got epigenetic changes, but also our environment is probably activating genes that 30 years ago weren't being triggered. Mm. So, so there definitely is a basis for some kind of genetic component to obesity, but the, the new environment is probably what's driving a lot of it, but there's definitely epigenetic changes. So again, coming back to, you know, Mothers with obesity are more likely to have bigger babies and those okay. babies are going to be bigger children. So so kind of coming back to, I guess, your original question is like, how do you intervene? And it has to be a multi kind of approach, as you mm-hmm. said, education in, in school. But what we're trying to understand is the biology of it and mm-hmm. see is there something within biology that we can target. So, you know, we work on a drug called um, glucagon like peptide 1. So GLP-1, another real mouthful. But um, GLP-1 is is kind of probably the best weight loss agent available at the moment. And it kind of came around uh, in a really unusual way in that your body produces this naturally. And it turns out in people with obesity, you know, the, the levels of this and the response to this is reduced. So looking at actually an interesting one, a gila monster, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a big lizard. So um, it's in their saliva and, and it helps with their insulin sensitivity. So that's how it was developed but we've been looking at its impact it has, say, example, beyond weight and on the biology, everything from the immune system to inflammation, all the way down to how it affects your, your muscles and you know, other tissues like that. So, again, it, it's complex, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to tease out the biology and try to understand systems that are broken and how we can kind of repair those.
0: And and I think the for the GLP one that's also um, used for diabetes research as well.
1: Yeah, so actually it was a, it was originally a diabetic drug, and one right, of the side yeah. effects was, was weight loss, which is, which is a great side effect if, in type two diabetes, where you know the majority of people with type two diabetes kind of you know have got excess weight. So I think very quickly they realised that this probably wasn't a side effect, but actually a very attractive drug. So. Uh, so it's now used for that, but it also, you know, we've kind of reported that it improves psoriasis, we did a study with you know, Bill and Ron Mullins, which showed that it, it improves uh, arthritis, you know, so, so it, it has got this systemic effect and, and all it comes down to that there's kind of broken biology within people with obesity. So this gut hormone system is broken and if we can give them back this hormone, you know, we can start to normalize some of the systems.
0: Yeah. And also, I think another branch of your research, another area that you're interested in is the immunology and the immune cells and what they're doing in obesity. So could you give me a little insight into the immune cells that you look at? I, I think know you mentioned it before, uh, INK T-cells um, and what they do normally and maybe how they're dysregulated in obesity.
1: Yeah. So I guess we're probably interested in the unusual part of the immune system. So you know, your immune system has the classical components, the T-cells the and the B-cells, and the macrophages. and um, Probably through my work with, with Lydia, we got interested in, as we said, the lysodianca T-cell, but there's other cells that are kind of, you know, on that unusual, unconventional cells, we call them. Um, so one of them is the mate cell. Mucosal-associated invariant T-cell, another terrible name, but um, it's kind of abbreviation, the mate cell is pretty nice. So the mate cell is um, a part of your adaptive immune system, but it has innate-like properties. So it's a T-cell. And the reason why we're so interested in is that um, it produces quite a lot of inflammation in the setting when it goes wrong. So normally, it helps you deal with bacterial and fungal infections. And I think within obesity, outside of bacterial and fungal infections, uh, this mate cell seems to become activated for some reason. And it starts producing inflammatory cytokines, you know, like IL-17, which then goes on to cause um, things like insulin resistance, which will eventually lead to type 2 diabetes, and so this, that's one of the cell types. And then the other one that we work on quite a lot is the natural killer cell, which, as the name suggested, is a, is a cell that's tasked with killing. So it would be the you know your primary effector cell against kind of cancers and virally infected cells. So within obesity, and in work that we kind of did with Lydia Lynch and Laura Tobin, who's still in the ERC, she's now a mm-hmm. lab manager there. We kind of found that in patients with obesity. The NK cell is defective. It, it, it can't do its normal job, which is killing cancer. And that might explain, in part, why people with obesity get more cancer because this anti cancer part of the immune system is missing. So, a lot of the work that we've done up until maybe two or three years ago was all kind of looking at how obesity makes the immune system go wrong. And more kind of what we're focusing on now is how we, we kind of restore this because we're, we're, we're kind of doomsayers. We're always saying bad news, you know, obesity kind of negatively affects this and, and stops this cell from working. But now what we're trying to do is how do we switch these cells back on or how do we switch them off if they're overactive? Um, and as, as we said, GLP is one way of doing that. And that's kind of what one of our guys at the moment is trying to see, can we find a gut hormone that will switch NK cells back on?
0: And I know you're also interested in cellular metabolism, which is something I'm interested in as well. And could you give us maybe a little insight into where that ties in with this?
1: Yeah. So I, I guess our, our mineral metabolism work probably starts with the NK cells. So originally what happened was we, we had noticed that our NK cells weren't killing, you know, they, they, they weren't producing the cytokines and they weren't killing the tumor cells like the individuals would. So at the time, um, Dave Finley who, who's based in Trinity had kind of showed that NK cells in order to kill they need energy so we had kind of we contacted uh, Dave at the time and asked them would he help us look at some of the, the energetics within NK cells from people with obesity and it turns out that in people with obesity the, the kind of internal machinery is, is broken they can't generate the energy that they need to kill so they can't engage glycolysis and at the same time, uh, Lydia Linshu was now based in Harvard, she was doing actually a very similar project. And Lydia kind of took it a step further, where she showed that NK cells from people with obesity were actually taking in lipids. So it's, I guess uh, the best kind of analogy I've heard is that they were putting diesel into a petrol engine. Mm. So they were taking in fuel. They were looking around. There was lots of free fatty acids in obesity. They were taking these in, but they hadn't got the machinery. So that's kind of how we got interested in it. And... We then went on, we, we had a, a PhD student who's now based in your group, Ashina Ryan. And I guess she started off because we were so interested in mate cells and mate cells seem to be contributing to disease. She went on to have a look at the energetics within them and she kind of found similar stuff that glycolysis seems to be broken and that seems to be a common trend now. But what she found what was really interesting was that there was a lot of um, mitochondrial defects and that was linking into the IL-17. And that, that's been a big target of ours to see what drives 17 and how we interrupt that. And um, So I think that was only published this year.
0: Yeah, so I suppose in a way this kind of breakdown of your glycolytic or metabolic machinery is causing disruption of inflammatory cytokines. So cytokine's a messenger that the cell will send out and IL-17, as you spoke about, is, is one of these. So I'm, I'm also just wondering, you know, the day-to-day in the lab. So for people who might not be familiar, you work on patient samples, and this is all, um, is this blood or, or tissue samples?
1: Yes, so, so we're really lucky, as I said, we're still linked in quite strongly with, with Dolan So Dolan is kind of a co-PI of the group, and what, on a weekly basis, we might get anywhere from five to 10 kind of samples from patients with obesity. And they can vary from, you know, we get kind of say peripheral blood on all of them, a blood sample. Mm-hmm. But on two to three samples a week, we get adipose tissue as well from patients who are undergoing bariatric surgery. We get adipose tissue. So it allows us to kind of look at the, the circulating inflammation, but also the local inflammation And once you get down to adipose tissue, it's really kind of unusual in that it has, as mentioned before, a really kind of dynamic immune component. There's lots of immune cells in there. In the healthy kind of individual, it seems like their job is just to help keep everything under control and make sure that your adipocytes are happy and that you know lipids are being stored properly. And once you get into people with obesity, what happens is we start to get a lot of uh, adipocytes, which are your fat cells, basically filling up with too much lipid, and like a balloon, if you keep you know blowing into a balloon, eventually it pops, so the immune system is there to clean that up uh, or to prevent that happening, but with that comes inflammation, and then you kind of get this into this cascade where too much lipid drives inflammation, and then inflammation starts kind of disrupting how the tissue is handling the lipid, and you know it gets into this snowball effect so the, the adipose tissue has been a, a great resource to really see kind of what's going on. Now, different in your own work, I know you guys look at peripheral blood, but actually, when you get into the yeah, the, it, it's, it's usually very similar. We've been lucky enough that what we've kind of observed in the peripheral blood, like the IL seventeen signature, also present in the adipose tissue. So it is a good surrogate, but actually to have both, yeah. So we probably get about you know anywhere up to ten samples a week, and at the moment in the lab, I think we have three postdocs there's uh, three PhD students, there's three MD students and an RA. So it's, it's a busy enough lab.
0: And with the peripheral blood studies, is there any kind of markers that you, we could identify as potential biomarkers? Even I, I'm kind of thinking of kids because, you know, for seeing this obesity signature so early on, is there anything in our blood that we could measure that might indicate that they would go on to develop such chronic inflammatory diseases?
1: Yeah, so, so we, we've actually just had a PhD student uh, finish, a clinical PhD student, Arm and Matt, and that was kind of Matt's PhD project. To have a look across the kind of life course that we see from we have, in some of our kind of studies, we have children who will be as young as six. We kind of follow the life course into our adult cohort, which the average age is about 45. So Matt had a look at all the different circulating uh, inflammatory markers that were kind of out there at the time. And one of them actually, it's a marker called Soluble CD163, so SCD163. And what this is, it's usually on the surface of an anti-inflammatory macrophage, which does a lot of them in the adipose tissue.
0: It's actually a lot of my PhD research was on, yeah, CD163
1: on the macrophages. You know, you know, well, so as it's cleaved, what happens is it's, it's cleaved as these macrophages kind of transition to, you know, the inflammatory state and we can pick it up in the circulation. So there's a really nice study done, I think maybe 10 years ago now, which showed that in healthy individuals, so young, healthy males, your level of soluble CD163 predicted your prevalence of diabetes 20 years later. Okay. Um, so, so even in healthy males, if you had slightly elevated soluble 163, you went on to develop, you know, your risk ratio of developing diabetes later was much, much higher. So we, we decided to have a look at this in kilometers, and, and what Matt found was that actually it's elevated in children as young as six. Now, these children would have excess weight, but they'd have no diabetes. You know, that won't come for another maybe 20 years till they're in their mid-20s. But this marker is elevated very early on and through the whole life course of, you know, obesity, it's elevated and it goes up and up and up until you get into the diabetic status when it gets really high. And interesting for us is that when we start to intervene, you know, through things like GLP-1 or barricade surgery, it comes down quite sharply, which is encouraging. So it starts to tell you that, you know, you're not on this life course that can't be changed. So that, that's probably the most promising market that we have, and and we're trying to figure out at the moment. Can it predict weight loss?
0: Yeah, because that would that would be so, huge.
1: Yeah, because I think at the moment the GLP one, as I said, is probably the only weight loss drug available to us. But about thirty percent of patients do not respond to it, and mm-hmm. the only way you know who does not respond is to put them on this drug for three months. And it's an incredibly expensive drug. And it's also tough for a patient for them after three months to have to tell them you're a non-responder. And also we have nothing else for you. You know, we have to stop this drug because it's too expensive and we can't give you an alternative. So potentially, you know, being able to identify who's going to respond would be really attractive in two ways. First of all, it will save a lot of heartache for people saying, you know, we know we're not going to be a responder. We'll have to look somewhere else. And also the cost, you know, because we're not going to spend several thousands uh, on someone who, who won't respond. So, so yeah, we're trying, to, we're trying to kind of finish that study at the moment. Kind of, we've been doing a big COVID project. We, we got a grant, which um, I feel so sorry for, for the student. We had a student who started in the middle of February, started her PhD. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, she was sent home and she hasn't been in yet. So we got a grant to look at. We have some really nice data, Megan, on... Um, on the MMR vaccine in children. So we have a group of children who are um, lean and a group of children with obesity. And when we look at the MMR neutral, neutralizing antibody titers, say to measles and, and rubella, they're half in the obese group as they are in the lean, even though they were vaccinated at the same time and they're the same age. So suggesting that either the immunity is waning quicker or it was never fully and never fully developed. So, we just got a grant from the National Children's Research Centre to look at this. So, we have a new PhD student in, and part of it, there's two parts. First of all, are dendritic cells doing their job? Can they take up an ancient process and present it? And then, are the T cells kind of um, launching the correct uh, and appropriate response to that? So, we're hoping to get that off the ground in the next few weeks. One of the big things was that people with obesity are at a, a greater risk of, you know, more severe. Outcomes in COVID, so we wanted to kind of ask the question: Well, why is that?
0: Yeah, and actually, I I saw I think that you know if you're obese, you're less vaccines are less effective. So that's probably what you are getting at as well.
1: Yeah, no, it is. So it, it's it's all about this kind of the formation of appropriate immune responses. So when you give a vaccine, you want an appropriate immune response, and obesity it's just it's just so dysregulated that vaccines are failing. So I think the the Hep B and the influenza vaccine. Are, are not as effective in patients with obesity as you are in healthy individuals. And again, even your responses to a virus, which is kind of a vaccine, is a, is a, a kind of a fake, you know, viral infection. and mm-hmm. um, Antiviral responses are, are compromised as well, which is why they're getting more severe COVID. So it all tied in quite nicely because we had this really complicated experiment planned on how we were going to look at people with obesity before and after we give them the flu vaccine, looking for antigen-specific T-cells and following them over a year. And, you know, it was, it was going to be difficult to get the timing right because obviously the flu vaccine is seasonal. And it turns out then COVID came along, you know, and gave us right. a medical infection that we can kind of track in our patients over a year. So, yeah, we're in the middle of that now, but you're right, it all comes down to, it probably ties in nicely with why vaccines aren't working.
0: God, that's mad. See, you were kind of planning on something similar before uh, yeah,
1: coronavirus. Literally, the experiment that the new PhD and Andrea was going to do was that we had lined up 20 patients with obesity and uh, 20 healthcare workers from Vince who were due to get their flu vaccine, so she was going to just assess their baseline immunity and then they get the vaccine and then we start looking at flu-specific T-cells mm. to that particular vaccine and kind of follow those over the space of a year to see, first of all, do they develop and are they maintained? And we're kind of doing similar stuff in COVID now, you know, as it turns out. So it was a, it, there was a tiny silver lining uh, to yeah. this terrible gray cloud for us. But yeah, so, so we're, we're kind of just starting some of that work now because it, it seems like maybe patients with obesity might have compromised immune memory as well, which suggests that we keep hearing about this potential second wave. Mm. You know, and maybe patients with obesity, even if they've had it, you know, there's potential that maybe they don't have the same protection that others have. Although we're still kind of trying to figure out, you know, we've detected for sure uh, antigen-specific T cells and neutralizing antibodies, but whether they actually stop you getting the, you know, reinfected, we don't know that. We presume that they give you some protection. So, yeah, we're, we're just in the middle of that at the moment. And hopefully over the next kind of six months, we'll get a good handle on on that.
0: Yeah. And I'm just kind of wondering throughout your career in academia, what has been maybe the most frustrating or stressful aspect, um, or time. And then on the flip side, what do you love about it? Like, wh- why do you have this passion for, I suppose, learning and, and for investigating? Because I know, you know, scientists are kind of innately curious, but it's tough as well at the same time. And there's a lot of setbacks.
1: Yeah, I said, I, I'm probably an unusual person in that I love what I do. And I've never really, you know, I've always, even during the challenges, I said I've been blessed to work with some fantastic people. So very early on, I started working with, as I said, Don and Lydia, and you know, they've had such a positive impact on my career that you know they've kind of dragged me along on their coattails. Um, <laughs> so I've been really lucky in that there hasn't been a lot of really frustrating or negative times. You know, obviously there, there's there's times when you're worried about grants, and again like that, I was lucky that every time you know the grant was going to run out, I happened to get another grant. So in that way I think I don't know whether that's I'm kind of an outlier there or whether I just got really lucky I say it's just really really lucky that, that so as a result I have this you know this kind of rose tinted opinion of science. so undergrads come in to me and they kind of might chat about wanting to do a PhD and I'm like that's the best thing ever I love my PhD <laughs> I enjoyed every day with it and I love my postdoc Where other people are like I'd never do a PhD again you know if you paid me you know three times the the stipend but I I really enjoyed it and I think that's why you know I always say I don't really see my research as work Mm. that's my hobby and I really really enjoy it so I I guess I'm lucky in that way and um, I don't know whether you feel the same
0: yeah no like as in I've, I've just finished my PhD so I'm about a month off but I actually did really enjoy it. I'd say the last month that I was stressful and I'm sure my close friends will say, "What are you talking about you? <laughs> you were giving out about that. But no, I suppose, yeah, it is. And I, I kind of, this is kind of why I wanted to do this podcast because I do think in a way, you know, research and, and scientific uh, research in academia is kind of a vocation. You either have to love it or you're going to get out of it because, you know, it, it is, it's tough. Um yeah. But I'm also interested, you've now transitioned to becoming PI or or head of a lab. And how did you find that transition? Or do you miss being in the thick of it?
1: Yeah, so so definitely. Listen, I love being in the lab. And actually, you know, as I said, we were supposed to chat, you know, uh, a couple of days ago and I was in the lab. So I still try to get in as as much as I can. And I'm lucky in that down here in Manute, I haven't got a very big lecturing load. So I have got time to get into the lab, Um, especially during the summer. You know, I've got Mm. more time than ever. But um I kind of became a, the, the PI thing kind of was unusual for me because I was linked in with Donald who is you know a clinician. When I became the senior scientist in his group, you kind of take over some of the PI roles. You know, so before I was officially a PI, I was kind of a on mini P I mm. So I think Donald often called me a mini PI where I was writing grants and managing the accounts and supervising students and um, without actually having that permanent, you know, kind of role that we associate. So I said, again, I was quite lucky and, you know, coming back to the original point, it's not to belittle, it's a really hard road, as you said, the academic road, Mm -hmm. you know, I really enjoyed it, I think you're right, it's a vocation, but unfortunately, you know, not everyone gets the opportunity to become a PI um, and that's probably because we just haven't got the right system, I think, Mm -hmm. in place. You know, at the moment, the only way you're becoming a PI is to become a, a lecturer, get a, a kind of permanent lecture position. And not, they're not available for everyone, which is unfortunate because we're, we're losing some great researchers who probably don't want to do the lecturing route. And there's no other option.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and how did you find the transition back to Minutes? I know that's your alma mater, but coming from the ERC and, and from a setting of a hospital to kind of more of a university setting?
1: yeah definitely so it was it was a little bit of a worry because you know i we had kind of we had something good out in drc you know we had this great clinician scientist partnership that was working really well so the the one thing i wanted to make sure was that if i was to leave that that would be maintained i guess how we traded it off was that you know we were always constantly worried about my next grants because that i needed that to you know stay on and get paid so i guess getting this position meant that that goes away because lucky enough I don't have to worry about grants anymore for keeping me in the group so, so that was that was definitely a big part of it actually I had um I don't know where I should say this but I, I had accepted a job in the RCSI
0: oh really okay
1: yeah I'd accepted a job in the RCSI and literally the day before um I was supposed to start there Manute came in and offered me a position and as you said because I I had a some good interactions with people going on down here. Paul Moynley, the head of the department, has been a, a great collaborator and kind of I guess a mentor to me. So when Paul contacted me saying, Listen, you know, there's a permanent job here for you if you want, I, I kind of ran and yeah, I left the RCSI.
0: Go in I, demand. I,
1: I think I think really lucky again, I think I think lucky, but um, no it, it was just it was it was a case of just the, the right timing for me. You know, I had some behind me. Again, I had the full support of Donald saying, no matter where you go, we'll maintain the, you know, the, this kind of uh, translational group that we have. So, so that was fantastic.
0: Okay. And so Andy, one of my last questions for you is, if you weren't a scientist, what do you think you would be doing right now? Where, where do you think you would be?
1: It's a scary question. Right? I have no idea. So <laughs> as I said, during the PhD, um, kind of a, a, probably in my third year, as, as, as you kind of said earlier on, I was kickboxing quite a lot. And at the time, I started doing some kind of professional fights and I was fighting around the world. And I was kind of thinking, maybe I might, you know, give kickboxing a go. So, on that, I had opened up a couple of um, kickboxing clubs and gyms. So, up until very recently, actually, only in January, I got rid of my last CrossFit gym. So I've always had, uh, I've always kind of had a gym or a kickboxing club kind of over the last 10 years and I've recently just cut all ties with all the gyms and kickboxing clubs that I was involved in. So I probably would have been in that kind of kickboxing slash fitness uh, space. But as I said, common sense prevailed and thank God because, you know, I, I don't see this as work.
0: Yeah, well, you could have been a, a parrot breather either so we don't know.
1: <laughs> could have been a parrot breather, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know whether... I don't know whether I would have been able to keep that up. I I think, you know, um, just going around telling people that, you know, you have, I think at one stage, there's probably 40 or 50 parrots.
0: You're like the parrot king, you know, Joe Exotic here over here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Probably as weird as Joe Exotic. Yeah. No, no. Thank God I said, you know, a couple of people got a hold of me and kind of beat some sense into me. And yeah, yeah. No, thank God I'm here.
0: Well, I mean, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat to me today. That was a very interesting uh, chat and I've learned lots. <laughs> I've yeah, learned, learned things about you I didn't know. So um, yeah, no, thanks again for coming on and chatting to me.
1: No, more than half, mate. Best of luck with the podcast.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Mel that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.